everybody, and welcome to Watch Party Gaming. This is your host, Siobhan, and I am joined today by my panel. Say hello, panel. Hey, hello, everybody. Panel. Today we have Samaria. Hi, guys. And Ruark. Hello. And say hello, David. I believe in coincidences. Coincidences happen every day, but I don't trust coincidences. Probably a good call. So today we are do talking about episode five, uh, the doomsday option. And our episode opens with Crowley having just melted one of the demons that was sent to collect him, racing through London at 90 miles an hour to go to Azurafel's bookshop. Azurafel's bookshop is in flames and he runs inside tr to try and find him. I have to say I love the effect of the car going through London at 90 miles an hour. It, it, it's, it's just beautiful. I don't know. It, it feels very demonic and unsafe. It is because also, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Where in the world in London is that possible? Yeah. I've been to London. That doesn't happen. No, it's like driving, drive through Toronto at rush hour at 90 miles an hour. Um, and I love the fact that my best friend is playing really, really loud. Yeah. <laughs> Mind you, they just got in this argument like three seconds ago. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm never talking to you again. And now he's he's on his way to Aziraphale's bookshop blasting my best friend. <laughs> Crowley will always It's come very back. kindergarten of him. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't want to talk to you anymore. What Azurafil says to him, he's like, come on, it's time to go. <laughs> Get in the car. We're going to drive to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> so there's, there's a couple things I want to um, bring up about this, this scene. Um, so the scene plays out pretty much exactly the way it's written in the book. But I find the emotional impact of it is just a tiny bit different because of one detail in the book. This is the first time you find out what Crowley's eyes look like. They would not have been able to do that effectively in the show, I think, without leaving out the whole part where we see their history. Um, you know, having him in human body on the wall rather than snake form. And, you know, the early years before sunglasses were invented. But in, in, the book like he's just this guy who always wears sunglasses and then when he's hit by the blast of water from the fire hose that knocks his glasses off and his eyes are revealed for the very first time so okay. that kind of leads me into the second thing i wanted to talk about which was some of the changes that were made specifically because of the casting choice they um talk about crowley in the book as somebody um who is very kind of sleek and cool and being cool is very important to him um it talks about his apartment being this you know showroom that pristine that looks like nobody lives there um he has uh, a laptop that's the most expensive and powerful and sleek you can buy because the kind of person he's pretending to be would have that kind of a laptop like being cool is really really important when they cast a uh, 50-year-old David Tennant in 2019, that means he looks kind of like a middle-aged rock star in women's skinny jeans. When the book came out, he very much was described as kind of like a yuppie. 
So I always pictured him as looking like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho, like some guy who's got some, you know, undetermined high finance job where he gets paid a lot of money and does a lot of cocaine. And he very much comes across as the kind of person who thinks it's cool to wear sunglasses inside, like somebody that everybody automatically hates on site. <laughs> However, I don't think he would ever listen to Huey Lewis in the news. There, I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> That's where the psychopath part comes in. <laughs> so just, so like, like I remember when uh, the original stills of the characters came out before the season one was ever released, and some people were really hesitant about, about Crowley's appearance because it is a big change from the book. But I think that makes sense if you're making the, the, the story happen 40 years later, that he's not going to look the same. Our concepts of what's cool in pop culture have changed dramatically in 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's another thing. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody would consider a yuppie cool these days. Or I guess cool is very dependent on the demographic. And so, yeah. I don't know. Maybe tech bros if they had, you know, a uh, uh, identifiable uniform. Well, and I don't think that uh, I could see Crowley as anything other than the swagger that uh, David Tennant puts on it, because that that swagger is definitely not in that book description. But yeah, to to me, that's Crowley now, and and that will forever be that. Like a K-pop star, maybe. I'm like going through going through my list of what do the kids consider cool these days. I don't know. I've never been cool, did, did so you I wouldn't a know. T-shirt. Leonardo t-shirt, oh. yeah. yeah. I was gonna say, I'm, I, I, I already know that that's not cool. That was, that was cool like ten years ago. No, no, the kids love anime these days. Like they wear like anime graphic t-shirts the way like ten years ago people wore like dad band t-shirts. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, they they wear anime t-shirts for shit that I've never heard of, and I've heard of Naruto. So. <laughs> You're right about that. Even I've heard of Naruto. <laughs> you know. So then we get the scene where Adam is once again threatening the end of the world and his eyes are glowing red and then we cut the credits. Well, now they added another disturbing element because the, the eyes glowing red is bad. It just does uh, not yeah. make that, him feel never ends well. <laughs> happy in any way. I don't know. Superman has eyes that glow red. Yeah, but then lasers come out of him. When he's destroying something. Yeah. And that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Is it? Only with Von Pa Kent, as you've mentioned several times. So after the credits, we cut back to Crowley. He is pulling away from the bookshop, and he's playing the, the Bentley. Oh, I shouldn't say Crowley is playing, because Crowley has no part in this decision-making process. The Bentley is playing somebody, find me somebody to love. Yeah. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> the Bentley's a Greek chorus. Yes. <laughs> I like it. Okay, headcanon accepted. <laughs> um, so from there we go to Shadwell, who has returned to his apartment, having, he thinks, just blasted, exercised his earful off the face of the earth. And um, Madame Tracy has no idea what's going on, but she is very English, and so she offers him a cup of tea and brings him inside. I always think Shadwell's uh, dialogue is... 
hilarious. You know, poor Newt is subject to lubricious occult wiles. There could be women there. <laughs> He's right for once. He's actually correct for once. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. I love how he's afraid to put away his weapon, like it's going to stop working. Yeah, he's he, just he leaves out it out. Everywhere he goes. Come out all I can't put away the finger gun or it may stop working. <laughs> or it might go off. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want that going off in your pants now, do you? Anything could happen. So, so Madam Tracy sticks him in her bedroom and just says, okay, just lie down for a while. So her, her bedroom's like pink and <laughs> full of plushies. And in the book, it specifically says that her idea of, of sexuality was kind of like born out of the 50s in the time of Gidget movies and, you know, very um, pornography was very innocent. Like even Betty Page, you look at Betty Page now and you're like, it's very sweet almost compared to the shit you see on the internet. <laughs> so what I'm getting from that is rocket bras. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and you know, lots of beach scenes and bikinis. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I don't know, just just a very much more innocent time. So so in, in Madame Tracy's mind, having like piles of plushies around is coquettish. That's a word for it. <laughs> Sam, Sam's like, I think I've had that unicorn stuffy at some point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll never look at it the same way again. <laughs> no. <laughs> And he finds like a flogger that's in pink. <laughs> what is this place? And I was like, I, I'm asking the exact same question, trying to figure out <laughs> the kind of clientele this would attract. And I don't think I like it. Well, according to the book, it's mostly older men. And mostly what they want is to have a cup of tea with Madam Tracy and, you know, kind of unload on her. And the rest is. Oh, so, oh she's an escort. Uh, which is Phrasing. <laughs> God. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say anything without it being an innuendo these days? Absolutely. Not. I, I mean, if you if you end hard enough, you can get an innuendo out of anything. If you're good at it, yeah. So one of the one of the the segments in the book is when he first wakes up in her bedroom, he sees his own face, and for a moment he thinks, "Oh my god, like what happened." Was I killed? And I'm looking down at my own body. And then he realized there's a there's a mirror on the ceiling, and he's like, "What kind of person wants a mirror on their bedroom ceiling?" Oh, <laughs> oh you innocent! <laughs> he doesn't get out much. No, he does not. <laughs> so next we go to heaven. Azurafel has just been zapped back to heaven. So there's a little scene where he. The quartermaster shouts at him, and he turns around, and starts walking towards the quartermaster. There's a little bit of a. Um, a very sh look too fast and you'll miss it scene where he kind of stumbles and grabs his leg. And a lot of people in the fandom have a theory that he was injured, that his angelic body was injured in the first war. And just, you know, you have, you've never seen it before because he's always been wearing a human body. And it's like, there's never any explanation for it. It's just there. And then he goes in and starts having a conversation with the quartermaster who shouts at him. I, I did notice that, but I didn't think of anything of it me neither i thought it was just kind of like nerves uncertainty he's getting his he's quite literally getting his footing back yeah interesting i kind of like the theory just because 
like he's made the active decision not to fight in the second war, but in the first war, he would not have known any better. The first war, I guess, uh, in theory, happened before um, Earth was even created. Yes, that is theologically correct. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to take your word for it. So in a war between angels and demons with no humans involved, it seems like that would be pretty easy. You just poke the angels in the eyes. Oh, (laughs) all of them? All of the eyes. (laughs) All of them. That would take a while. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, technically the demons were (laughs) demons are angels. They're fallen angels. So like there are many eyes to go around to be poked is all I'm saying. Like, ow, stop hitting me. Stop hitting me. That's kind of like how I feel like it would go down ultimately. It really brings a new new uh, twist to the term eye for an eye. So the quartermaster, is all sh- the quartermaster is very shouty, Angel. I have to say I love that quartermaster. I love the beard. <laughs> the yeah. with the sideburns. He, is, he, he's he very looks, done. He looks to me like a human version of the Muppet Sergeant Floyd Pepper from the Electric I see Mayhem. It. I see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> yeah. He has, a, I'm, I'm looking at a, a still shot now, and he's got a lot of um, medals across the front of his his tunic, which I hadn't noticed the first time around. He's got, he's like gold, epi- well, everybody's got gold epaulets. It's all, it's all very white and beige. They're very. Very British, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, and, we um, <laughs> let's delve into that. No, we don't have time. Um, <laughs> and and he says, uh, uh, "We'll take the sword out of your celestial wages." So, oh, that killed me. <laughs> I was like, "You guys are getting paid, <laughs> <laughs> getting paid in something." You guys got to clock in and clock out. Oh, that's awful. Zero fossils, I have no intention of fighting in any war. And you see all of the angels, their heads immediately <laughs> turn towards him. <laughs> That's an what? option? What? <laughs> <laughs> the, probably the most shocking thing to have in heaven, to happen in heaven since the first war. And then there's that whole sequence where, where Zerofa says, you have to send me back. And, and the quartermaster says, you don't have a body. And you see Zerofel kind of like, you can see his mind ticking over where he's like, Demons can possess humans. I've been hanging around with a demon for 6,000 years. I've long since figured out that there's not that much difference between us, so I'm going to give it a go. Yeah, it's he's having a series of realizations. It's like things are finally clicking for him. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if he con- he's consciously aware of this, but I think on at least on a subconscious level, he's realizing exactly how much he can get away with and he's realizing that actually nobody knows what the ineffable 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 plan from the great divine is and they're he's like i've been going off script this whole time and i'm still as much as an angel as i was when i started therefore like clearly either the boundaries are farther out than i thought the boundary isn't what I thought it was and or none of this is actually supposed to happen. And if it is supposed to happen, then the end game isn't what we thought it's supposed to be. And like with all of this in mind, he's like, well, fuck it. <laughs> YOLO. So he decided to F the ineffable plan. 
I think he's realizing that no matter what he does, the ineffable plan is still going to ineffable. So, like, (laughs) whatever he does, whatever he decides, the plan is still going to plan. And there's nothing he can do to change that. So if he's supposed to be an angel, he's going to stay an angel regardless. I, I feel like the problem with coming up with an ineffable plan is it comes across as a challenge. There's always people like me who are going to be like, oh, it's ineffable. I'm going to F it. <laughs> I'm going to F it right up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the thing I got from it was very much that Azurph, when Azurphil is talking to the Metatron and realizes that no matter what he says, no matter what he does, heaven is going to go ahead with the war. For me, that's when Aziraphale said, okay, well, in that case, I'm breaking off from heaven. I am going to do the right thing, what I believe to be the right thing, no matter what the consequences. Aziraphale is is an angel who did not so much fall as, like, leap headlong out the window. (laughs) 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 So... I, I, uh, this reminds me of a discussion I stumbled across recently where people were talking about Huckleberry Finn. There's um, been a lot of controversy over over Huckleberry Finn because it, you know, uses the N-word, which was, you know, common in writing at the time. But um, very much the point of it was Huckleberry Finn deciding that if helping a slave escape meant he was going to go to hell, then it was worth it to go to hell to do the right thing and protect his friend, this man who had been a father figure to him. And I sort of see the same parallel here with Aziraphale. He's kind of like, it doesn't really matter what the personal consequences are. Doing the right thing is more important. And if I fall because of it, that is what I, that is the decision I've made. Which, I mean, in a way, he's doing what he's always supposed to been, like, have been doing, which is protecting humanity. Like, he was a guard at an Eden, and he was, you know, in charge of making sure Adam and Eve and whatever humans they created in that garden forever and ever remained safe, you know? And so, I mean, he just took that and kept applying it like yeah he's definitely been enjoying his time on earth he's you know he has this 6,000 year old friendship with a demon but you know he's still making a point of you know keeping humans safe and healthy and sane and doing and trying his best by them so like like destroying the earth whatever the like the reason for that is that's wrong, even if it's like, oh, that's what you're supposed to be doing, because that's a direct contradiction to what, he, you know, his first task was in the first place. Well, and ultimately, it's kind of his destiny to do all this stuff, right? Like, even he gets put in the Garden of Eden. I'm sure God knew and understand that he was going to give the sword to Adam. And that's why when she's kind of asking him about it, she doesn't really scold him for it. She just kind of drops the ball or just asks him about it and then stops. And then, you know, uh, when all of this goes down, she knows what's going on. So ultimately, in canon, she picked him from the beginning to be the one that stays down there for 6,000 years and comes up with this decision and has friends with the demon. And that's all part of that ineffable plan. So she makes him a protector, 
and then sets forth the challenge. Would you protect them even from me? <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought about that. I was like, God hasn't said a word. Like everybody else is speaking for her. Everybody else is like, well, this is the script. No one ever stops to think, oh, maybe we should check in. <laughs> and she, does, she doesn't say anything. She's just like, yeah, what's up, guys? She, she's literally narrating. And I think to the end a- where... Except Aziraphale. Except Aziraphale. tries to check in. He just can't get to him. David, what you were saying about like, her asking Aziraphale where her sword went and she she already knows where the sword went I think like Aziraphale kind of missed the step where like <laughs> like she knows that he already gave away the sword he doesn't realize that by her knowing that he gave away the sword or knowing like he doesn't it doesn't click to him to be like oh if she already knows i gave away the sword and nothing happened and i'm still an angel then maybe dot 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 you know <laughs> like maybe like the if like questioning is okay it's it's not the questioning that's the bad part it's the nature of you know the actual question you're asking and so like it's not that satan and what's in the rest of the demons were bad for questioning it was them being like oh i'm better than god or i'm better than humans da 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 or yeah i i mean i could give you guys a sunday school lesson but (laughs) who feel like it (laughs) (laughs) well I feel this whole situation brings up an interesting paradoxical part of religion that i've i've contemplated on a lot in in the past which is do like you were saying earlier doing the right going to hell in order to do the right thing as it were you know the the right thing is not the the right right thing but it's still the right thing so sacrificing yourself to hell in order to do the right thing is like the ultimate form of martyrdom which to me is translates into a direct one-way ticket to heaven well yeah that's what jesus did he marked like that's quite literally what jesus did like yeah <laughs> if, if, yeah so so like just just the the willingness to go to hell makes you even more holy and it's like this weird paradox to me that that i yeah i don't know all the captains break the prime directive exactly <laughs> <laughs> At least the good ones do. So next we get a very brief scene uh, with Adam and them with a little bit more body horror where he forces them to smile. Oh, yeah, oh, that, that got me. <laughs> oh, so yeah. massive cringe. <laughs> it, it actually reminded me a lot of the uh, the effects from the original 89 Batman uh, uh, Jack Nicholson Joker. Oh, yeah, where his, his face is kind of like frozen. Yeah. And then we go to a conversation between uh, Newton Anathema, where um, she tries to explain, you know, the, the prophecies and um, her role uh, in her family. So there's a scene, there's a little, a little piece where... Uh, Anathema shows him the the prophecy that says that Newton Anathema had sex. Um, and in the book, it says that the, the part that 
Agnes predicted it was less disturbing than the fact that descendants throughout the years had written little notes of encouragement. (laughs) 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 It's a family affair. (laughs) So to speak. (laughs) So there's... There's a scene where Anathema's like he's he's questioning why she has to do everything that Agnes says, and and Anathema says, you know, I've spent my whole life trying to figure out what Agnes wanted me to do. She's never failed me. Sometimes I feel like I fail her, and I think there's an interesting parallel there between Aziraphale and Anathema. Where yeah, instructions not always clear. <laughs> Doing your best. <laughs> You know, having your role kind of like laid out in cement for you for your whole life. And I've previously also compared Anathema to Adam. She was born into a role. Her job in life is to fulfill this role. Adam's role was to tear the world apart. Anathema's role was to save save the world from Armageddon. Zerifel's role was to do what heaven tells you. Crowley's role was to do what hell tells you. So like there's this there's this whole like almost all the characters are constrained by what they were put on earth to do. And in different ways, all of them are all kind of going, well, I'm also going to do what I want to do, or I'm going to do what I want to do instead of what, you know. Or in Anathema's case, very reluctantly doing exactly what she was intended to do. Yeah, she does it very perfunctory. Like, she's clearly capable. She knows what she's doing. She did the reading. She studied. You know, she goes where she's supposed to go. And there she does have flashes of, like, being truly passionate about something, like the conspiracy theory magazines. Um, but for the most part, she's very much going through the motions. Like, enjoyment is beside the point. Mm-hmm. Which, which is interesting, because I, when we first see them have sex and... It almost seems like she is in that same mode of, oh, I know I have to do this. But then when we see them the next morning, it was almost like, oh, okay, this wasn't so bad. The next morning is the point where she gets to choose. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of changed tone for her. Yeah, yeah. She'll do her duty, but then what, what comes after that? So then we go to the bar. Crowley's on his second bottle of whiskey from the looks of it. Complaining to the bartender, I never meant to be a demon. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not the weirdest thing that the bartender has heard, though. (laughs) And I just love the fact the humans are just like, okay, dude, here, have your whiskey. (laughs) 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 I I get the impression this bartender has heard this specific rant before. (laughs) Every time Carly's having a bad day. No one in that place is phased <laughs> like, oh, that, it's that at guy all. Says he's a like, demon again. He's just going to sit in the corner and yell. He tips well. We'll just yeah. <laughs> like where do you think he works at? Now that now that would be something like a finance bro would say. Oh, he, like, I literally yeah. work in hell. Yeah, job I work for uh, investment firm. I didn't mean to be a demon. <laughs> <laughs> so none of this scene and uh, Aziraphale appears. Aziraphale does not appear to know where he is. He says, did you go to Alpha Centauri? So they they make arrangements to meet in Tadfield. There's a a little um, scene where Aziraphale says, it's too bad I I can't use your body or something like that. (laughs) And Crowley goes, yeah, not going there. (laughs) (laughs) I have got the sense that Crowley was thinking that he was imagining it. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be 100% sure what's going on. 
but he does he does decide to go to uh, to Tadfield. They they agree to meet in Tadfield. None of the scene happens in the book. In the book, after Crowley leaves the burning bookshop, he says, "What I'd really like to do is go and get drunk." But what the fuck? If I'm gonna go, if hell's gonna destroy me, I might as well go out with a bang. And he miracles himself up some new sunglasses, gets in the Bentley, and goes to Tadfield. When he found um, Anathema's book, he found the piece of paper in it with all of Xerophil's notes. So he just says, okay, well, that's where Armageddon's happening, so I'm going to go. In Xerophil's case, he actually spends some time on Earth, jumping from body to body, trying to find one that's in England. Um, and so I think it's good that they cut that out, because some of the scenes were not, shall we say, culturally sensitive. Like he, he goes to someone who's on a vision quest in Australia, someone who's doing a ceremony in Haiti, there was a really cool sequence where he jumps into a televangelist while the televangelist is on the air and starts telling him everything he's saying is wrong. (laughs) 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 It's like, we will be victorious. And he's like, well, actually there's only about a 50, 50 chance. (laughs) (laughs) So then we get to uh, Madam Tracy setting up for her seance, very brief scene. And then the horsemen get together, the four horsemen of the apocalypse so first, um, you see the four the four bikers of the apocalypse getting together in a diner. There's a, a little tiny Easter egg in there where you see Death is playing the video game, and the machine next to him, all of the top scores, scores two to ten are Death, but score number one is T. Pratchett. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I like that one. So there's a whole scene in the book that just does not happen in the show. And as far as I'm concerned, Good Omens, the TV show, is absolutely perfect in every way. But if somebody came to me and said, we're going to add an episode, what do you want in there? I would add the other four bikers of the apocalypse. Because in the book, they had four additional characters who were in that diner, who were actual bikers, who were... In, uh, they're introduced when they're hanging around while Death's playing the, the trivia game. Um, and it includes the detail that the trivia game categories are sports, um, what else, pop music, I think cultural events or something like that, and general knowledge. Um, and as war g- walks into the diner, the category sports change to wa- changes to war. And then famine comes in and uh, like, general knowledge changes to, you know, famous famines, things like that. So by the end of uh, when all of the bikers are, are, sorry, when all of the horsemen are in the room, all of the categories are the, the named after the horsemen. And so there's this person in leather standing there playing uh, the trivia game while the other, while these four hell's angels watch him. And uh, he suddenly stops and everybody says, oh, yeah, Elvis died 1976, Prickniff 1976. And um, the guy who's playing the video game says, I don't care what it says. I never laid a finger on him. And all the other horsemen turn around and go, death. (laughs) 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 I'm everywhere. So the the bikers go up to the horsemen are kind of like, so your jackets all say Hell's Angels. We don't like posers. What chapter are you? And Pollution says, Revelations, chapter six. (laughs) 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 One of the bikers happens to know his Bible 
figures out what's going on and says, oh, my God, these guys are the real deal. They are the real Hells Angels. Can we go with you? And they said, yes. And so the four, bikers, <laughs> oh, yeah. the four other bikers of the apocalypse tag along. And they're all like, what's going to be your name? What's going to be your, like he's she's war you know he's famine what's gonna be your name i'm gonna be grievous bodily harm (laughs) (laughs) wow okay yeah that'll do it actually uh one of them picked impersonal embarrassing personal problems um but then uh somebody uh one of them picked cruelty to animals um one of them picked ansiphones answer machines for the Americans in the audience. <laughs> but then he decided he wanted to change it to really cool people. So like the kind of people who wear sunglasses inside. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing personal problems says, well, that's no fair. I want to change mine. I want to be things that don't work even if, after you've given them a really good thumping. <laughs> <laughs> and then he wanted to change it to no alcohol lager. And everybody said, you've changed it already. Stop now. And he says, okay, well, fine. I'll just be, things not working after, uh, even after you've given them really full thumping. But secretly, I'll be no alcohol lager. And then he changed it to all foreigners, especially the French. (laughs) 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 And then he changed it to treading in dog shit. (laughs) And at the very end, what happens is I mentioned in the previous um, episode that in the book, um, they were having rains of fish. And so um, when they're on their way to Tadfield on the highway, um, they hit, they get to an accident where a um, tractor trailer has overturned because it slid on some fish. Like you do. Like you do. The four horsemen just go over it. The other four (laughs) bikers of the apocalypse uh, follow them and hit the the truck and... um, Three of the four of them are killed instantly. Treading in dog shit just before he passes out from the pain decides that what he hates even more than treading in dog shit is being covered in fish. So he changes his name to People in Fish, and that's <laughs> why they no longer. And that is why they do not appear in Revelations because they don't make it all the way to Tadfield. <laughs> Fair enough. Had so, to edit. Yeah, so this was absolutely hilarious, and a lot of people asked Neil Gaiman whether or not it was going to, you know, why, if any of it was filmed, if it was ever in the script, and he was kind of like, we had to sacrifice some stuff, and unfortunately, the four other bikers of the apocalypse could not, could not be in the story, which is too bad, because they were hilarious. (laughs) Then you'd have to show death turning back around after they hit the truck, and that would just be irritating. Well, I, I imagine, so it looks like they decided that dumping, um, you know, thousands of pounds of live fish on a motorway was maybe not in the budget. So they kind of, maybe also outside their CGI budget, who knows? So uh, so they skipped that whole sequence. But I wanted to share it with you guys because I thought it was like the funniest parts of the book. So then we get to David's favorite part, the seance. Brenda would make a really good member of the uh, St. Beryl's Order of Chattering Nuns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Her husband would agree. This is a man who literally had to die to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> and barely even that, mind you. Like, she's disturbing his peace over the stupidest shit. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you how my week went in detail. <laughs> 
and, and not only disturbing the peace, but like angrily wanting to have it happen too. Like, get on with it. I need to have this happen. I need to contact him. She was like almost mean to Madam Tracy about making it happen. I was here first. I have seniority and then proceeds to tell the most racist story ever. Like, <laughs> like stop bothering this man. He's been, he's been having peace and quiet this whole time. Finally. I'm not sure about all the elephant noises and stuff <laughs> that Tracy was making when Aziraphale made contact. She was trying to get into onto the right frequency. It was, I guess, the psychic version of, like, radio static. Uh, yeah, I, I'll buy that. <laughs> Tuning through the dials. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, fr- the first thing he says is Sprechen Sie Deutsch. So I guess in his travels of trying to find a body in England, she hit Germany at some point. And she says, uh, um, when uh, Aziraphale starts making contact and uh, somebody says, are you all right or something, or says something to Tracy and she goes, no, this is something real. Like, this isn't... This isn't <laughs> She's like, no, guys, I've been scamming you this whole time. <laughs> Though, the fact that the husband, I forget his name, I want to say Bob or Rob or something like that, like, was trying to come through, meaning she does have at least a little bit of psychic ability. She just has no idea what to do with it, how to access it. Like Siobhan was mentioning in the in the book, all of the other ones that Aziraphale was visiting were ones that were trying to, in some way, communicate with the beyond while, while he reaches them. So, in some way, shape, or form, Madam Tracy was trying to communicate with the beyond. Yeah. Otherwise, She's just Aziraphale not good at it. reached her. She opened the telephone line and... I would like to think that she actually can communicate with the beyond. She just chooses not to tell, not to actually give that communication. Like the lady comes <laughs> no, in no. and wants to talk to her husband and, and her husband's standing there like, no, just no, I'm out of here. You just tell her whatever she wants to hear. I don't care. I'm gone. And she's sitting there like, oh yeah, uh, he, he's, he's loving it. Uh, he, he wants to hear all about your day. Yeah. So he says, hey, I got you, boo, all of the, yeah. all the spirits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's even better. I love that. To be honest, if you were actually at a real seance, there's the kind of people who go to seance want certain results. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. They want to hear about the tall, dark, handsome stranger in their future. They don't necessarily want to hear that they're about to lose their job. So, you know, they won't pay you if you give them bad news because they don't come back. <laughs> it's like the hypnotism act. It only works if, if you're wanting to have it work. Yeah. We should probably quiz DW about that because he's the only person I know in this room who's been hypnotized. Oh, I've been hypnotized. Oh, have you? Oh, yeah. So how does that work then? You have to actually want it to happen? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I was somewhat young at the time and I was hypnotized in a very strange fashion. It was like called, it was shock hypnosis. Ow. He like grabbed my arm and jerked it and like yelled sleep. And I just like, and like my brain went kind of like static white and like I could still hear and still process. But if I tried to think on my own, it was just like this white static. It was kind of weird. And do you think you'd been able to pull yourself out of it if you'd wanted to? Yeah. Yeah. I think if I, if I, I mean, I was, like I said, I still had some, some level of consciousness, so I could have, had I wanted to, I could have pulled myself out of it, but I was like, nah, let's see where this goes. Let's see what this, this is all about. Yeah. Tracy throws everybody out. <laughs> She's like, right, I have to go. 
she sits, puts on a cup of tea because, again, English. So English. We're going to have a cup of tea and figure out what's going on here. And as she does, she looks in the mirror and she sees Zerafel looking back at her. She is incredibly unflappable, this woman, because most people would find that really freaky. Yeah, she's curious. She's like, oh, okay, hi, hello, what's up? Well, it's probably further proof that she has reached to the other side, so she just doesn't, like, this is n no new news for yeah, her. I can just see her saying, going, okay, explain yourself. <laughs> what are you doing in my They're head? very sympathetic personalities. Like, they get along. Like, so... And I think it goes beyond her just not fighting it for whatever reason. Like, she just like, oh, yeah, this is this is just how things go with me. That's cool. Like, she likes Aziraphale. Aziraphale likes her. And, you know, that they just keep it. They keep it pushing. So next we get the sequence where Crowley is stuck in traffic. And it explains the story of the um, M25 being the sigil of... Moo in the satanic cult of Bodegra, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I don't know if those things are real, if they were made up for the show. But he creates this evil circle around London that catches fire and traps everybody, including him. Further proof that Crowley is actually, like, the best demon of them all. <laughs> and his, his ways are the best ways. And also his own worst enemy. He gets himself stuck in London when he's trying to get out because of something demonic he did. It's similar... It, it's similar to, like, the scene where he takes out all the phone networks and then he's trying to call a zero film. <laughs> <laughs> and, he has, and he has to find the last payphone booth left in London. <laughs> Maybe he's actually good at his job because deep down he's good and he wants to do good at what he's doing. Maybe. I'm trying to, f I'm, I'm just sitting here trying to follow the logic. <laughs> he's good at what he's doing. He's good at being a demon. So he fucks up the actions of the best demon he's on earth. He's a great demon. This is like nobody else can keep up with him. Like, for many reasons, like, as God says. And, and, like, and it's because he's not demoning. He's, he's actually good. <laughs> you know. So he's actually good at his job. He spends time, he spent time on earth. That's very undemon like but it makes him effective in a way nobody else is you know god's like he has an imagination that's all him nobody else no other demon has an imagination <laughs> you know like he's he explaining it from you he's explaining the m25 and here comes Hester. what's a computer like please stay on topic <laughs> like you are you are missing the point of this because you are like focused on a detail that ultimately is irrelevant <laughs> Like, instead of being like, oh, wow, Crowley, that's so creative. Wow, that's so subtle. Good job. They're like, boo. They're literally, the the uh, the subtitle was faint booing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love the sequence showing him moving the the markers personally. Like, going He's out hands on. Yep. Going out exemplary employee. <laughs> in in uh, the orange vest with the reflective panels. Like, honestly, he reminds me, he reminds me of the boys that, you know, I was in a program with my college undergrad program where, like, they would do stupid shit just to see what would happen. Just utter chaos. Like, there's no real, like, ill will in it. Nothing malicious. They're just like, I wonder what would happen if and then they just do the thing to see what would happen if. And you're like, why the why the hell would you do that? And the only explanation is boys will be boys. It it it's 
unrestrained science is what mm-hmm. it is. The, the, you got to fuck around in order to find out. And record <laughs> properly, because that's that's the, what makes it science. You have to record properly. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Right, it's science right. if you write it down. <laughs> <laughs> so next we get the scene where Shadwell meets Aziraphel. He goes running into the kitchen. Get your hands off the defenseless whore. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, as much as he calls her Jezebel and all the rest, he's like running out there to defend her. No, that's my Jezebel. (laughs) (laughs) And there's absolutely wonderful scene where um, Madame Tracer turns around and says in Aziraphale's voice, not a Southern pansy, Sergeant. I'm the Southern pansy. (laughs) The original. (laughs) So apparently a lot of Americans did not know that pansy is um, a pejorative for a gay man. Oh. An effeminate gay man. Uh, I knew. I knew. Yeah. But a lot of people people were very surprised to find this out. And gay men was kind of like, yeah, I thought everybody knew. (laughs) No, gay men. Some people are neurotypical and don't read. <laughs> Next, we get to the scene where Haster escapes the answering machine. So you're in this call center where people are calling people, cold calling people to tell them that they were in an accident and you may be entitled to compensation. So in, in the book, they're selling double glazing. And I assumed that, you know, an equivalent here would be like, we're offering a special on duct cleaning, where they just call as many numbers as they can find. And Hester comes out of her headset. Oh, I nearly puked. (laughs) So nasty. That is gross. (laughs) So maggots apparently are a hell thing there's a sequence in the book in the scene where crowley scares the guy at the sh- at the paintball range and he faints um and crowley's laughing because you know it was fun to to make the guy pass out by temporarily turning into his demonic form and Aziraphale says well i thought the maggots were a bit much <laughs> yeah. so maggots apparently are a hell thing uh yeah I'm sure it's which is maggots. Mm, There are very few things that like I wouldn't try to clean, but maggots are are up there. Like once once they're there, I just torch it. Fuck it. I I can't do it. Set the house on fire. (laughs) That's a wrap. (laughs) You would think Beelzebub would be the one using the magnet maggots because. That's what turns into flies. Yeah. <laughs> then he ate them. Oh, I nearly cried. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, pretty disgusting. I mean, they're just like grubs, you know, you fry them up in some butter, they'll be fine. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just pure protein. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I know that eating insects is a thing. Um, I was able to eat, uh, I think it was like a grasshopper or something because it was fried. Mm-hmm. So, like, if they're crunchy, I can do it. But if they're yeah. squishy, not happening. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything you fry that's, is going to be my, edible. I mean, you can you can deep fry a napkin. If you deep fry and, it in breading, I can. It's, yeah. it's shrimp, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> well, you got a point <laughs> there. I can work around that. Yeah. 
<laughs> so in the book, it said, um, you know, after Haster ate the call center, um, there was a low-level decrease in the amount of evil in the world because all those people did not get their baths interrupted and were able to finish their <laughs> Oh, no. Counterproductive action. Well, it has to acknowledge it in, in the TV show. It's like, I, I, you people are doing the good deeds, but um, I'm going to be selfish here. So next we get Aziraphale and Shadwell plotting to take down the antichrist how many nipples does he have oh, so many pots of the nipples as far <laughs> as the eye can see <laughs> nipples from here to history <laughs> there's a very cute line in the book where um shabwell says is um the antichrist going to be harder to get rid of than a demon and aziraphale said no about the same and aziraphale had never himself personally had to work very hard to get rid of a demon he just you know hinted that it was getting late and he had some work to be getting on with and crowley always took the hint and went home oh <laughs> <laughs> no it's fine actually so then we get to the scene where um haster jumps into crowley's car and threatens him that scene does not appear in the book um it's all done over the radio. Hell calls him up on, takes over his radio and basically says, you are now subject to the mercies of hell. The thing that gets me about this scene is Haster breaks his, breaking his sunglasses. Like, Crowley's looking in the book and Haster just reaches over and grabs the sunglasses right off his face and breaks them and then starts threatening them. And Crowley gets all smart-ass with them. How is your time in <laughs> the answering machine? And at that point, he kind of decides, you know what? hell's gonna destroy me what's the worst could could happen and he just starts driving towards the fire haster gets discorporated by the fire but crowley doesn't yeah his powers of manifestation are like topped here he's like i don't want this to happen or i do want this to happen and it does just that's great <laughs> been on earth for a long time had a lot of practice he's worked those muscles well, it, it goes back to that thing you said earlier about he caught imagination yeah. from the humans. Yeah. And, and yeah. I love the way you put it that way, like it's a communicable disease. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me a disease. I, I also think uh, Haster's got like a fear of, of things going fast because Crowley's car is not going very fast before Haster starts to panic. He's like, what are you doing? Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I, and it's weird that Haster like dares to do this because he has he has proof firsthand that Crowley has no compunctions against killing other demons <laughs> and so like for him to stay in this car thinking that oh it's a gotcha it's the end of the line when the moment Crowley starts gunning it for this wall of fire he should have like been like gone <laughs> I have no idea open the door and he's dumb as hell <laughs> dumb as hell <laughs> <clears throat> like this guy hates you he already killed one of you he will kill you he does not care <laughs> Haster has more courage than brains I think is what we're calling it <laughs> maybe maybe arrogance Battery yeah doesn't think that Crowley is as brazen as he is like Haster I think Haster thinks that Crowley's gonna give up on the chicken game and and as we said previously, Haster is a duke in hell, and Crowley is nobody. 
even though Curly has nothing so to lose. Maybe he's still sitting on that authority that he thinks he has. Like, everybody knows, all of us sports fans know, that, like, when playoffs are around the corner, the most dangerous team to play when you're trying to get a playoff spot is a team that's already been eliminated from the playoffs, okay? So, like, <laughs> they have nothing to lose, so they'll just take your team out and have no qualms about it. That's Crowley. Crowley is the team that's already been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, the soundtrack for this scene is I'm in love with my car. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the, the Bentley is playing when they, they go into the, the fire on the M25 and then come out the other side <laughs> on fire <laughs> still moving yeah really playing I'm... up the Bentley as a character at that point oh yeah the Bentley's totally a character in the show well we decided the Bentley was the Greek chorus right yes, yes. Yeah. the Greek chorus is a character so then we get to uh, Adam and the them and the them so this scene is kind of the pivotal one in the book where Adam is dividing up the world and saying, you get this part, you get that part. And Pepper says, well, what part are you going to get? What's yours? And he's like, this is mine. This is all I've ever wanted. So this, at this point, Adam's almost like two people and he's got to choose one. And do you choose the one that you love in the place you love with the people you love? Or do you choose the ultimate power? And it really feels like it could have gone either way. Like the scene where he's following them and saying, why won't you be my, like, you're free to leave, you're free to do whatever you want. So they leave. And he's like, giving people agency means that they make choices you don't want. And so he follows them. And he's like, wait a minute, I set you free. I didn't think that meant you were going to leave me. Yeah. So I don't think that for me, this was going to go either way. And the reason for that is that they show the show God playing with the poker cards during the sequence. And that her shuffling changes him from the beast back to Adam with like this little sleight of hand thing. And it was like, okay, so this was really part of that ineffable plan. He was always going to be going back to the, the side of God. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I believe that God shuffling put him in the position where he would have a place that he loved that meant as much to him as Tadfield does and his, his friends do. But I think the, ultimately the choice still comes down to what he values more. Yeah, I read the shuffling kind of in a meta sense, meaning the shuffling doesn't have anything to do with Adam, like in particular, in the sense that shuffling and Adam are direct, like are a direct cause and effect. I was like, oh, the shuffling is telling us, the viewer, whoever the viewer is, that they're like, we don't know what like what this ineffable plan is that's why it's ineffable and so things can go either way and what the players do what adam does what crowley and aziraphale do what the angels and the demons do etc 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 like they they cannot force it <laughs> like whatever choice they make in whatever direction they make it in it, it, like it's is not part of a script that they're aware of like 
one of the first things we learn about the ineffable plan is that it's like playing poker in a dark room. You don't know the rules, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you just you just have to do whatever you decide to do and it's going to end up how it ends up. So that's how that's that's how I interpret the shuffling. Like Adam, Adam could have gone either way. He could have chosen to succumb to being the Antichrist or he could have been like, no, actually, this is not what I want to do or a secret third option. <laughs> which is both and he does with that what he will Except that she's stacking the deck though yeah like she's actually doing a sleight of hand trick to change the the cards it's not pure shuffling we know that but they don't know that <laughs> like she's exchanging the demon card it's like she has two two atom cards one's that one that's not demon and one that is demon and and she's exchanging one for the other in the deck is it that she's she's controlling it or if she's like adam is adam is picking and choosing he's working on picking and choosing which what he wants and so whatever he chooses is like the cards that's gonna pop up i really feel like agency is is such a strong theme in this story that it would almost spoil it to have adam's decision predestined for me you know like i i do believe that that god shuffled the deck in such a way that he has something to lose by making either choice Mm -hmm. so the choice becomes important and making the right choice becomes important and that's what leads him to deciding that you know his his love of the humans that he the actual real life flesh and blood humans that he knows is so much more important than ruling humanity, the kind of generic out there people that you don't know. I'm going to jump to the scene where uh, R.P. Tyler is giving directions to the horsemen. R.P. Tyler is one of these people who sends letters to the editor about the misbehavior of the other people in his town. I cannot believe in this day and age, these hooligans on these motorcycles. (laughs) So he ends up just pure by luck, giving the directions to everybody. He gives it to the horsemen. He gives it to Tracy and, uh, and Shadwell on the scooter. Um, and the whole time he's, he's writing letters in his head about, you know, these hooligans who have knocked down the, the, signposts and how dare the weathermen send us this weather who do they think is paying to clean it up <laughs> he's had enough <laughs> so newton and Ath- newton and athma figure out that they need to go to the airbase i'd just say newt is really good at interpreting these prophecies like instantaneously figuring out that the iron bird means an he's airplane so and- good he's very clever like he he read that thing once and had it pegged for exactly what it meant i think it's a combination of him not being steeped in it from the get-go like anathema has been and like going through life having to do things like in an atypical way like he couldn't rely on things working for him the way they work for literally everybody else and so like thinking about things in a way other than like point A to point B, that's just that's just that's just how his mind works at this point. So it it does not surprise me that he's really good at riddles. 
And then he, he gets very stressed out about the possibility of being like locked up and waterboarded and shot. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I was like, damn, entirely wow. reasonable concern. <laughs> so everybody's converging on the airbase. This is where the action is going to happen. The the guard, I don't know if you noticed this, was reading a copy of American he Guards. Is. The whole scene with the disi- disguises um, Obviously, something you couldn't show on screen, but in the book, it's something that he remembers happening, kind of. That's how it happened, right? <laughs> like, it's it's in, like they just planted that in his head and just drove on through. Although, if they had done it that way in the show, they would have had to leave out the line where he says, I was not informated about a surprise. Informated. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been a loss. Let's, let's be honest here. <laughs> so, death actually splits into two people because you can't know what death looks like. Yeah, because he becomes the driver as well, right? Huh. I was wondering what happened with that. I was like, there's one extra person. What is going on here? I did notice that Death is always in the lead. Like, the other three were in the backseat. Death was in a position of, like, being in charge. I, I did catch that. Well, even from the diner, they call him Lord. My Lord. Mm-hmm. So he's the Lord over all of them. He's existed before anybody. So the horsemen take over the computers, take over the world's electricity, start telling it to do what they want to do. Um, you see all these scenes of these horrified people who work at various nuclear installations going, what the hell? They start doing something interesting with the makeup where they almost start leaking out of their human bodies, which I thought was an interesting yeah. choice. Like, I didn't quite know what to make of that i was like oh is it because they're getting closer to like (sighs) to like doomsday and so like they're overexcited i guess but yeah i was like oh that's a detail yeah you see famine's teeth you got the piranha teeth. Very long and pointy. Yeah. And, and war is ble- it's like war crying blood. Bleeding from yeah. <laughs> and uh, pollution is almost like leaking oil. It yeah. almost looks like. Death doesn't change at all. Death never changes. Death is death. Is death. I did like the fact that last ride was only 100 miles. They were so upset about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's what's the drama in a hundred mile? A very, a very pretty a hundred mile trip. Mm-hmm. Very quaint and charming. Then we get to the scene where R.P. Tyler is giving directions to Crowley, and Crowley's car is still on fire. Crowley's very polite. He says thank you and please. <laughs> And the whole time he's composing the letter in his head about young people not, you know, like following basic safety protocols of not driving cars that are on fire. <laughs> and uh, the whole time the car, the car, the Bentley is playing We Will Rock You. <laughs> well, at least we know the car doesn't run on gas. Or if it does, like, Crowley never fills it. Or Crowley has only ever put gas in it once, and that was to get the decorative bullet holes. Crowley sweeps in to where uh, Azurfell and um, Shadwell are at the gate. Loud music, car on fire, gets out very theatrically and dramatically. <laughs> You'd never get that kind of performance out of a modern car. <laughs> this is a man who knows how to make an entrance. Sounding like someone's grandfather. Sounds like my grandfather, actually. I just love how theatrical he is. He's like, he has to announce his arrival in the most dramatic way possible. Tracy and Aziraphel are arguing back and forth, <laughs> and Shadwell's got his fingers pointed at the, the guard the entire time. 
Is he just going to exercise the guard somehow? Like, <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> all, the, all of a sudden, your finger gun turned into a literal gun somehow? I mean, it might. You had a lot of celestial power in one spot. I love the fact that um, when, you know, Azurfell asks Crowley for his help and Crowley goes, leave it to me. He, goes, he walks up and goes, army human. <laughs> like, this is how he addresses the guy. <laughs> it's like... I don't know who you are, but I know you work for the army, so you're army human. What a day to be put on, like, guard duty. No doubt. (laughs) (laughs) This poor airman has to deal with all of this crap going on. It's this weird old man pointing his finger at me. This woman having conversations with herself, and then this burning Bentley. So then Adam arrives, and they just open the gate and go in. (laughs) Because, you know, it's the Antichrist. So the scene where Adam puts the soldiers to sleep, it looks like the kids are still a little freaked out by exactly how powerful Adam is. They look at the soldiers fall down, then they look at him like, oh, yeah, what have we gotten ourselves into today? Like, it's one thing for Adam to, like, lead them and boss them around. It's another thing for, like, Adam to face a line of machine guns and grown-ups <laughs> and be like, go to sleep. First of all, why are these adults pointing machine guns at children? <laughs> like, this sticks out to me every time I've watched this episode. Like, they're like, you're on a military base. You're not supposed to be there. And I'm like, yes, but they're also clearly 11 years old. Please put your guns down. <laughs> it, it, I, I think it's like the men in black shooting uh, the arcade situation where... You know, he shoots the the one little girl, and they're like, "Why did you shoot that one?" And he's oh, like, "Well, that oh. guy just—he's like that guy's just got like like a Kleenex. He's you know, big scary alien with a Kleenex and stuff. But like this little girl in the middle of this shit—that ain't right. There's something going <laughs> uh, on there. You got a point there. Where where a whole bunch of really weird ass shit is going on. Yeah. Like everybody else is we supposed on, to be here. High alert not. because all the nuclear um, well, and they're warheads from... have suddenly armed themselves, and all of a sudden these little kids come wandering in. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and it's an unfortunate world reality where they come from a training where they go to the Middle East and children are used as improvised bombs. Like it's not they have to th- see everything as a threat. Unfortunately. Well, there you go, bringing weird, real-world shit into it and bringing us all down. No, I'm sad. (laughs) You know, I was thinking that those kids are going through kind of a 180 degree in their brain, too, because they had just gone through this ridiculously harrowing experience where their best friend's eyes started glowing red, and he's hovering in front of them and, and is able to do all those powers, and then they themselves, with their, their friendship and ability to tell him no seemingly turned him back into the atom that they know and they're off on this adventure which is really just no different than the adventures they've been doing before adam they are taking this remarkably in stride (laughs) for how their day has gone so far yeah they are they could stand to be more freaked out (laughs) and dust says now everything ends and organ music plays (laughs) ominous organ music plays and we end on another cliffhanger so I guess we can call that an episode. Um, Rourke, do you want to take care of our outro? Certainly. We want to say thank you, as always, to Michael and Jen out of the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Thanks, Michael and Jen. 
And of course, we want to say thank you to all of the other wonderful Watch Party podcasts. We've got a Watch Party of Ice and Fire. We've got Watch Party Lord of the Rings. And we've got Watch Party Wheel of Time. Go check all of those out. They're available at all of your major podcasting outlets. All the, all of the finest podcast purveyors. Uh, you can find us on social media, Game and Watch Party. That's at Game and Watch Party on Twitter, on Instagram, email Game and Watch Party at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, reach out to us and, and give us a follow. Back to Siobhan for our final question. So your final question is, you are a horseman slash biker of the apocalypse. What's your department? Gluttony. Of course, Famine and I might have a little bit of a tiff. You have to ride at opposite ends of the herd. Because... <laughs> <laughs> if you ride too close together, you cancel each other out. Yeah. <laughs> I would be the horseman of underwear never fitting right. Oh, that's not cool. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, I would be the horse horse person of tacos. I know tacos aren't like really an evil thing, but I just want taco powers. It's cool. So maybe the horseman of no lack of tacos. Oh hell no! Or the worst tacos. The horseman of the day after eating tacos. The, the horseman. <laughs> yeah. The horseman of those those tacos in the Midwest. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much a hamburger in a in a hard shell, you know. We have this place down here called Tazakwaka, and I've had it once. And this separates the natives from people who ended up here for whatever reason, because. It's the most disgusting thing you've ever seen. Like, it, just picture how bad a taco can go. But the natives here in Alabama, like, there's always there's always a line. And I don't understand why. Because it tastes like it came out of the freezer aisle. It's bad. That would, that would be a horseman apocalypse taco for sure. I have so many answers, but I'm going to go with PowerPoint presentations. Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's low. <laughs> it's a very specific answer. <laughs> There's a reason for that. <laughs> I have to do my work. <laughs> Actually, I, I want to change my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be the horseman of tacos. I'm going to be the horse the, the horse person of uh, always misplacing your tea as soon as you make it and not finding it again until it's cold. Oh, that's evil. That is really mean. <laughs> <laughs> and your powers are strong in this yes, universe. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs>